So today we are continuing in our series in the book of Acts. For our guests, we, we started a series in September, which was titled, which is titled Unconquered from One Life to All Nations. And we have embarked on an adventure together of studying what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God for the mission of God, for the gospel to go forward and for people's lives to be changed. And so far, it has been, it has been inspiring to study the book of Acts. It just seems like a, a word in season for us here at Four Oaks. So today, we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 15. You can open up your, your Bibles there. Also, if you are interested in some additional study, I want to recommend two different resources. First is, and most obviously, is the, uh, the study guide that we've developed for this series. So it's kind of a companion guide that goes along with the series. There are additional study questions, application questions, group questions, um, excerpts that are just good background context, things like that. If you don't have this, you can get it out of the Connect desk right across the lobby. <clears throat> also, if you're interested in kind of a, a deeper dive into the book of Acts, one way to accomplish that is through commentaries. And there's a particular set of commentaries that I'm finding very rich in this season, and a commentary on the book of Acts that is out of the Bible Speaks Today commentary set. And it's a, the general editor of this commentary set is John Stott. And John Stott wrote the, the Acts commentary. So it's the Bible Speak Today uh, commentary on Acts written by John Stott. I mean, this is just a rich, uh, thoroughly accessible um, application-rich tool for your library. So if you're looking for more study, you can get that as well online or wherever it is you buy books. Okay, Acts chapter 15. We're going to read 35 passages together, so with your permission, I'm going to kick it into overdrive. Title of this morning's message is, What It Really Means to Be In. What It Really Means to Be In. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together, together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by, by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples 
that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are all saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would take this lengthy <clears throat> section of Scripture and that you would sort through it in our hearts and help us to understand it. Lord, not that we, we might simply know more, but Lord, that we might know you better. Help us today. We need you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Shortly after Pearl Harbor was bombed, my grandfather, that would be my mom's father, my grandfather determined that he had to join the Army. He had been in the Civil Air Patrol as a teenager. He had always 
greatly esteemed the military, and he wanted to serve his country. It was a defining moment in the nation, and he wanted to be a part of it. So one day he walked in and he informed his wife, she had three girls at the time, my mom being the oldest, that he had to do his duty, and he left and went to enlist. And by the way, before one judges him too harshly, remember that few of us have had to live through a time where the entire world was at war, or when our country came under attack, under a direct attack from a well-organized, well-defined nation that was armed to kill. So he arrived at the recruiting station, and he, he discovered once he arrived that in order to get in, you had to pass a physical. And so he took the physical and, and discovered in taking the physical that his blood pressure was too high, and so they declined him. Well, he was a very determined man, and so what he did is he left the station where he had taken his physical in an attempt to apply. He went down to the local hospital. He admitted himself into the hospital, and he stayed there in the hospital until his blood pressure came down. I mean, that back in the day, maybe that was something you could do. You could just go to the hospital and check yourself in. Who knows? But it worked. It worked. He, he, he left the hospital. He then retook the, went right back to the station, retook the test, and he passed the physical whereby he was accepted into the army. But there was one reality that he never forgot about that experience. It was a story that he told my mom, and my mom eventually passed it down to me. It was one reality that he never forgot, and that is that the army had requirements. The army had standards. And if you wanted in, you had to meet those standards. Now, Acts 15 is a defining moment in church history. It is a defining moment having to do with requirements, with standards. The unconquered gospel has now pushed out to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are beginning to come in and respond to the gospel. You may remember from the study that we've already done that it kind of started with various isolated cases. There was Acts 8 in the Ethiopian eunuch, and then in Acts 10, the Roman centurion responded. And then all of a sudden, revival breaks out in Antioch, and and a church forms from there, and that church eventually launches out Paul on the first missionary journey to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13. But there's something happening while all that's going on, something of a parallel course that's developing, because the inclusion of the Gentiles is beginning to push forward this critical question about the Gentiles. And, that, and the question is, what do the Gentiles need to do to get in? What do they need to do to get in? Now, of course, it was a, it was a question on the mind of the Jews, not of the mind of the Gentiles. Because as far as the Jews were concerned, well, the Jews had everything they needed. They had already satisfied all the prerequisites for Christianity. I mean, they had the law. They had circumcision. They had the prophets. They had history. They were God's people. They had Abraham. And so the question that they were wrestling with is, could a Gentile just kind of bypass all of that? Were they exempt from all of that? Didn't they have to satisfy some kind of requirements, some kind of standards? Don't the Gentiles, like the army, have to adhere to certain requirements in order to enlist as a Christian? 
never one to overstate himself, John Stott says, quote, the issue here was immense. The way of salvation was at stake. The gospel was in dispute. That's how serious this is. That's how significant it is. This early in Christian history, the gospel is in dispute. And so I want to study this section together, and I want to do it by looking at three different parts. We're going to look first at the conflict, and then we're going to look at the council that responds, the council that forms in response to the conflict, and then we're going to look at the conclusions that that council gives in response to the conflict. So let's look first at the conflict. Again, back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Men come down from Judea. They're teaching. This is what they're teaching. Verse 2, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's verse 1, actually. And after Paul and Barnabas had no dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to talk about this stuff. Then in verse 4, they come to Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the church, the apostles, the elders, and they declare all that's been done. But then these other believers, keep in mind, it's believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So they're Pharisees, but believers. They rise up and they say, it's necessary to circumcise them and and order them to keep the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas have returned from their first missionary journey. And they discover upon returning that these men from Judea, men, a party that would eventually come to be known as the Judaizers, they had come down from Antioch and they had begun to teach the people. And they had a theology that kind of went, we believe in Jesus, but it's Jesus and some other things. It was a Jesus and theology. So for the Gentiles, for the Samaritans, for the Greeks, it was Jesus and circumcision. It was Jesus and the law of Moses. In other words, what they were trying to do is they were trying to make the case that in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. And that's what was in play as this is unfolding. It was this idea that you have to add something to Jesus if you're not a Jew. And by the way, the problem with that kind of Jesus and thinking didn't end back then. The church, throughout the history of the church, has often fought these wars of addition. Let's call them that. In other words, frequent eruptions of Christians adding stuff as the basis for how you get into the kingdom of God. Always wanting to add something to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in, in C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters, the ranking demon, Screwtape, tutors his disciple, a demon named Wormwood. He's kind of an underlink. And the whole book is about Screwtape kind of training and tutoring him in these satanic strategies for how to bring down Christians in particular. And one of the main devices that he offers to Wormwood is he says, quote, keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. Christianity and. In other words, Jesus and. Add to Jesus. Always add to Jesus. Because when you add to Jesus, you dilute Jesus. When you add to the gospel, you dilute the gospel. So for the Judaizers, it was Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and the law. I mean, today it might be Jesus and the poor. Or if you're out of the faith movement, Jesus and 
your faith. Or if you're a fundamentalist, Jesus and your holiness. If you're Roman Catholic, Jesus and your good works. But the enemy is always tempting the church to add effort to the cross, to add effort to the gospel, to do anything that we might smuggle ourselves in as the, as the real reason why we're saved. Smuggle ourselves in as part of the finished work of Christ that we ultimately have something to boast in. Which is why Jonathan Edwards once said, quote, We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We contribute nothing except the sin that made it necessary. So this is playing out where the Judaizers have to be responded to. They have to be identified. The, the error that's in there has to be identified, and then it has to be adjusted and responded to. But there's something else going on in Acts chapter 15 as well. See, when the gospel embeds itself in a new people or in a new culture, it often throws different ethnic groups together, different races together, different people together. And this, this inevitably leads to the question of what it really means to be in, because like the Judaizers, each group, the dominant group, tends to then clothe their Christianity with the trappings of culture, clothe their Christianity with the trappings of their upbringing. So for the Jews, it was, it was circumcision. It was the dietary laws. It was the, the law of Moses to, to clothe their Christianity in that. You know, when, when Hudson Taylor um, left Great Britain to go to China to preach the gospel, he carried with him certain assumptions about what it really meant to be a Christian, what it really meant to be in. And so when he arrived in China, he spoke like an English Christian. He dressed like an English Christian. He ate like an English Christian. His Christianity, he says, was wrapped up in England. And the problem is he might have been a wonderful specimen of an English Christian but he was getting nowhere in China. There was no fruit in his preaching the gospel because he was trying to reach a people that didn't look like him, that didn't eat like him, that didn't talk like him, that didn't dress like him, that didn't live like him. And the message that he was inevitably and understandably sending to them is that to come to Jesus, you got to be English. To come to Jesus, you got to dress like this and to be like this. Well, Hudson Taylor eventually realized that he was importing his culture into the gospel. And so he burned his clothes, he grew a pigtail, and he picked up some chopsticks and he began to eat with them. In other words, he did what Jesus did when Jesus clothed himself in flesh and came from heaven on high, and he clothed himself and looked like us and came alongside of us and dressed like us and served us and loved us and ultimately died for us. Because Hudson Taylor began to see that the goal of mission was not to convert them to his customs. The goal of mission was to convert them through the gospel. See, that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 15. The Judaizers are trying to convert them to their customs. And so they're battling out what they need to be converted to. So Paul and Barnabas immediately see the folly and the danger of this. And that's why in Acts 15 verses 2 and 3, they immediately begin to contend 
Because, it, because this isn't something that's merely wrong. It's not like, oh, they're just a little wrong-minded. They'll get it sorted out. No, this is a threat to the gospel because they are adding customs to Jesus. It's Jesus and our upbringing. It's Jesus and our customs. And so they engage the Judaizers, the Pharisees. They debate them. They agitate until it becomes evident to the Jerusalem church that, hey, this question is serious. This question must be addressed. This question must be engaged. And so they call for a council. Now, let me just hit the pause button there for a second to say that it may interest you to know that this event and this issue behind Acts chapter 15 is also expanded upon in the book of Galatians. Paul devotes an entire epistle to this one issue. In fact, he talks specifically about Acts chapter 15 in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, where it records then... After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So there's a bridge right from Acts chapter 15 into Galatians 2. And he says to the Galatians, who were also experiencing the effects of the Judaizers back then, this this Jesus and theology that was circling around Galatia, this is what he says to them, quote, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to, this is what he calls it, a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so we now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Accursed. That's how strongly Paul felt about this. In fact, Paul lived his entire Christian life making sure that the answer to the question of what do I need to get in, that the answer to that question always remained Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus and Jesus only. So there was a conflict. Now, in response to the conflict, they convened a council. So in verse 6 of chapter 15, we are informed, quote, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And they convened this council in Jerusalem where they hear from three different voices. They hear from Peter. They then hear from Paul and Barnabas. And then finally, James wraps up the meeting. So in verse 7, Peter stands up. And what Peter begins to do is he kind of takes them back into his own story. He, he reminds them of what took place between him and God, how God called him to the Gentiles and to Cornelius in particular, and how God chose him to go to the Gentiles through this dream that he had, and how when he preached the gospel, and this is really important because Peter comes back to this repeatedly, when he preached the gospel, the Spirit of God fell upon the Gentiles in the same way it did upon us, fell upon the Gentiles in the same way that it did upon the Jews, and how therefore there was no distinction. And this blew Peter's mind because he thought there was a distinction between Jews and Gentiles before the Lord, but he realized through that experience that there was no distinction, that God saw Jews and Gentiles the same, and they needed to be converted in the same way. And so he tells that story about how there was no distinction. 
And then in verse 10, he basically calls them out for putting a yoke upon the Gentiles. In fact, let me just read this to you. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So he calls them out by putting a yoke on the Gentiles. The, the yoke, by the way, the reference to the yoke there is the law. Why are, you, why are you doing this to the Gentiles? Something that we haven't been able to bear, our fathers haven't been able to bear, and now we're imposing it upon the Gentiles. That makes a lot of sense, he's saying. So Peter's point pretty much you know, forms the summary of this entire chapter and the whole book of Galatians as well, which is that it's by grace and grace alone that a person is saved. So Peter has his say, and then he steps off the stage. Next comes Paul and Barnabas, and they step forward in verse 12. And I, I mean, you got to think about what's taking place. They're in Jerusalem, and Peter has just spoken, and now Paul and Barnabas. This is like a New Testament dream team that is all gathered together. I read this book recently about, about the dream team. You know, the dream team was the Olympic team from the United States in 1992 that went to Barcelona. So Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, uh, Barkley, Magic Johnson, uh, Larry Bird. You know, the author of this book was talking about the, the unusual constellation of events that took place that drew these people together at that time and in that country. That's exactly what's happening in the Council of Jerusalem. This unusual, remarkable constellation of events have converged, bringing together these early church heroes, this this dream team. And so now Barnabas and Paul step up to tell their story. And they just begin relating their own accounts of how God was using them through the proclamation of the gospel in power and, and signs and wonders. And basically, he's just coming behind, they're just coming behind Peter and punctuating Peter's point by saying there is no distinction. There was no distinction in Peter's ministry. There was no distinction in our ministry. It is grace and grace alone. So they've weighed in, and then they step off the stage. And then in verse 13, James comes forward. This is, by the way, Jesus' half-brother, James. And he steps forward and he says, Peter's testimony, he says Simeon there, but that's just another way to say Peter, Simon, Peter. Peter's testimony is validated by the prophet. So James comes along and he says, I really appreciate Peter's story, his personal experience And I really appreciate that Paul and Barnabas have had these experiences as well. Now, I want to take you to the Word of God. And I want to remind you that the Word of God talked about the day in which this would happen. So he says, Peter's testimony is validated by the prophets. And to substantiate that, he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. But by the way, just as another aside, if you compare Acts chapter 15 as it's written here, and you flip in your Bible over to Amos in the Old Testament, you will note a difference in the way that it's worded between Acts chapter 15 and Amos 9. The reason for that is because James is quoting the Septuagint. Don't let that big word intimidate you at all. Septuagint is simply the Greek translation 
of the Old Testament. It's called Septuagint because that word literally means 70. And, and the, the, the lore said that there were 70 scholars that got together at the end of the second century and they, they studied the Hebrew and they found the right words to translate the Hebrew Old Testament and Aramaic into the Greek. And so that's what the Septuagint is. So he's quoting from the Septuagint. And what's the point that he's making? Well, the point that he's making is that the Bible itself testifies that the inclusion of the Gentiles is not an afterthought on God's part. It's all part of the plan. And so he says Amos even foresaw this, where God promises to, quote, restore David's fallen tent and rebuild its ruins. So that, that Old Testament passage, by the way, is a, is a passage that actually foreshadows the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Jesus was the seed of David. Jesus came to restore the tent. Jesus came to rebuild the ruins. And Amos says, this would all happen that, verse 17, a remnant of men, that's the Gentiles, a remnant of men, a Gentile remnant may seek the Lord. So James comes behind Paul and Barnabas and comes behind Peter to, to show how the Old Testament anticipated that the Gentiles would be coming in. In other words, James stood with them in this message that was essential to the gospel and essential to their faith, that it is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. Now, let me take an opportunity, since we're in Acts 15, to just draw out a few kind of enduring principles to Acts 15 some enduring principles that exist for us today from this passage of Scripture. Here's, here's one. That error forces the church outside of itself. When error comes in the church, it often forces the church outside of itself. So, you know, just like Christians should not stand alone and independent, Churches need to be meaningfully connected to each other. And as we study the New Testament, we see that there are these connections throughout the, Old, throughout the New Testament of churches that are, are yoked together, that are, are interdependent upon one another. And it often happens for mission. In fact, here in Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch to go to Jerusalem, they stop at churches along the way. Because they're connected with these guys and they give reports about what's going on because they're meaningfully connected. So it happens often for mission. But here in Acts chapter 15, we're observing another reason the churches get connected, and that is to engage in theological discussion, to engage in theological dispute, to resolve issues that are taking place in different churches or within the evangelical culture at large. See, the point is that when you study the New Testament, you do not walk away with the sense that churches were independent of each other. The New Testament churches were, were connected. They were vitally connected. And I say connected intentionally because that's part of the reason why we use the language of connectionalism. Connectionalism. 
One of the reasons why, as Pastor Paul's been talking the last few weeks, that we're, we're pursuing a relationship with Sojourn Network is to obey this connectional principle that we see in the New Testament, connectional principle that we see particularly in Acts chapter 15. The churches are not to stand alone. The churches need one another in the same way that believers need one another. So error actually forces churches outside of itself. Secondly, error forces the church to define the truth. It forces the church to define the truth. See, oftentimes the only message that we ever hear about heresy and and, and, and misguided theology and error is how much we should fear it, how afraid we should be of it. And, and it is true that when, when you read the New Testament, one of the greatest threats in the New Testament to the gospel came from that which was false, false prophets, false teachers, a false gospel, a false message, false doctrines. In fact, many of the New Testament letters are written specifically in response to false ideas that are emerging. I just mentioned Galatians just as one. But, but what I'm saying is there's a whole other side of that coin where error actually pushes the church back into Scripture, forces the church to theologize about what they're hearing and to resolve what God might be saying. So in history, the heretic Marcion pushes the church to ultimately identify the canon of Scripture. We have, we have these books of the Bible assembled into this canon because some heretic back hundreds and hundreds of years ago was pushing the church to believe something completely different. Arius forces the church to affirm, to affirm the full deity of Jesus Christ because he's out there preaching, no, Jesus was just a man. And so the church has to go and think about it and then come out and and affirm a creed, assuming and asserting that Jesus is the Son of God. So the lesson that we have to carry forward from that is that God has been faithful to his church, that even when error comes up, even when heresy comes up, even when people are experiencing problems and conflicts, even in persecution, God's ability to protect the church is greater than Satan's ability to corrupt it. God's ability to to protect the church is greater than Satan's ability to corrupt it. In fact, let's not just use that in the church. Let's use that for us personally as well. God's ability to protect you is greater than Satan's ability, than the world's ability, than the flesh's ability to to take you down. I'm 54. I, I, I've been a Christian for 32 years. And yet I, I still wake up some mornings, honestly, more aware of Satan's ability, the enemy's ability, the flesh's ability, the world's ability to corrupt my desire. Thinking more about that than thinking about what Christ has accomplished and how those gospel realities should be shaping the way I'm thinking. Do you ever wake up feeling that way? I mean, you, you have to. I know you're like me in this. Do you ever wake up just feeling like you're lost or aimless or weary and embattled? And just, just kind of feeling like, you know what, I, 
as I look out, I think the world's going to have the final say on this. I think I'm going to get taken down. I'm going to get taken out. The enemy, the flesh, whatever, something's just going to level me. Listen, God's ability to protect you is greater than the enemy's ability to corrupt you. God can protect you. God can save you. So error forces the church to define the truth, and that's a good thing. And here's one more thought real quick from Acts 15, another, another principle. Truth supplies the foundation for unity. It's truth that supplies the foundation for unity. So once the church defines itself, it gives Christians the basis upon which to unite. Unity is rooted in truth. It would have been so easy for the Christians back in Acts chapter 15 to say, well, you know what, let's, let's just ignore the differences. I mean, let's think about all the things we have in common. Let's think about the history that we share in common. Let's think about Abraham. We have him in common. Let's think about the heritage that we all come out of. Let's think about all of the Old Testament things that we have in common. Look at all we have in common. But rather than seeking to find a way to keep the tent big, to make it appear like there are a lot of numbers or keep all parties united, what they did is they defined the truth, and as a result, they lost the people. They lost the Pharisees that were also Christians. They lost the Judaizers. See, if, we'd, if we would have measured the success of the Jerusalem church by growth at that period, they wouldn't have been looking very good. Or by whether all of the people were feeling good. They wouldn't have been looking very good by that either because that was a very turbulent time. We would have missed something. See, Acts chapter 15 reminds us that not all unity is good and not all division is bad. So, you know, the group of Jehovah Witnesses that are meeting this morning on Raymond Deal down there, that, that unity is a unity, but it's not necessarily a good unity. The Judaizers that are peeling off in Acts chapter 15, that's not a bad division. It's a division, but it's not a bad division. Because in Scripture, unity is built on truth. And we believe that. In fact, one of the reasons we have a website for this church is to take the opportunity to post what we believe through a statement of faith. One of the reasons why we do the Four Oaks in 40, that Pastor Paul was talking. One of the reasons why we do the Engage class for people that are interested in membership is to explain what we believe to make sure that people are clear. If you're here and you're interested in plugging into that class, we're starting another one next Sunday night. It's a great opportunity to just have questions. In fact, I'm really excited about this morning, today, this afternoon, whenever. I'm really excited that we're having people join the church. Because they're making an informed decision based upon agreement with what this church believes. In other words, we are uniting together in relationship based upon truth. Okay, so there was the conflict. And in response to the conflict, there was the council. And then in response to the council, there were the conclusions. So let's look, let's plug in at verse 19, where this is what James says. My judgment is we should should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols 
and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So, so James stands up and he says, let's not trouble them with any Jesus ands, period. He makes that determination. But then he says, but let's encourage them to walk a godly life in the following ways. And so they write up a letter, and then they sent Saul, Paul and Barnabas and Barsabbas and Silas with the letter to Antioch to inform the believers there. Now, let's just pay, let's pay careful attention to, to what's happening. Because, yes, to get in, it was Jesus and Jesus alone. But they still urge these new believers, these Gentile believers, to do four different things. Four things. One, to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Two, to abstain from blood. Three, eating blood. Uh, three, to abstain from eating what has been strangled. And four, from sexual immorality. Several of those just have to do with Leviticus and how, and how that was understood and articulated back in Leviticus. But the thing that, that you realize as you read James's response is that at first it just seems, it seems schizophrenic. I mean, the guy, you know, they, they go through all the effort to affirm that it's grace and grace alone, and then James stands up and he says, it is, it's grace and grace alone, but let's tell him to do this as well. It seems like some kind of, you know, scriptural sleight of hand. You know, he's, he's pulling one thing off and putting another on. It's grace alone, but do this too. And you could almost imagine people reading that and the cry of legalism coming forward. You're not putting that burden on me. But, but actually, there's something far more practical taking place here. And that is that the apostles were instructing the Gentiles as Christians on how to live wisely and how to live obediently. Wisely and obediently. And no, no they, they, were saying, they were talking about how to live wisely because the Gentiles were walking out their faith amidst Messianic Jews. In other words, Jews that were following the Messiah. And these Jews that were following the Messiah were working through all of these issues of how the Old Testament still made a claim upon them. And so, abstaining from food that was sacrificed to idols, abstaining from the blood and strangled animals, was a way for the Gentiles to respect the consciences of the Jewish brothers by leaving those practices that would offend the Jewish believers. In other words... What James is saying is, you can love our Jewish brothers this way, Gentiles. You can respect their consciences. You can, you can abstain from this as a way to love them. And so he's talking to them about how to live wisely in an environment where they're working these things through. But he's also talking to them about how to live obediently, because he brings up this other category that isn't rooted simply in Leviticus, but goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and that is the call for sexual purity. That goes all the way back to the original design of sex between a man and a woman who are married. And it all illustrates, all of this illustrates the, 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 the call to be wise, the call to be obedient. It all illustrates that when we come to Christ, there is still a call to obey Christ. There is still a call to, you know, to leave certain things 
behind. I love the way Kevin DeYoung put it. He said, there's, there's nothing you can do to get into the family of God, but there are ways this family lives. There, there are ways this family lives. And that's really important to think about because some think that, there are some Christians that think that as soon as you begin talking about obedience, you immediately introduce legalism. As soon as you begin talking about how this family lives or what we should forsake or what we should run away from, you're introducing legalism and the law. But, but the, the disciples, the apostles have already come down on that issue. They, having resolved the question of how do you get into the family, grace and grace alone, the apostles then turn their attention to how this family lives. We, we love one another. We respect one another. We attempt to walk in purity before one another. See, sometimes it's really hard for believers to, to embrace the idea that, that once you're in a family, you turn from sin. Once you're in a family, you, you leave certain things behind. And, and that's unfortunately supported by, by popular teachers that portray the, the, the exclusive problem of the church today is that of legalism. We live under condemnation. We live with a crushing sense of shame. And we do, often, but that's not the only predominant problem in the church today. There's also this serious problem with hedonism. We love pleasure. We pursue pleasure. We replace God with alternative gods and other functional gods. And so Scripture portrays change as not simply surrendering to God or not simply believing the gospel alone, but stopping certain sins, just obeying God, fleeing certain things. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian. And it comes out in Acts 15 as they're defining for the Gentiles how how a person is saved, and then how a person lives from there. Now, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, now what if the Jerusalem Council, you know, was meeting today, right here in Florida? What might they call the Gentiles to stop today? You know, what's the equivalent of those things that they, they, they called for them to give up back then? What are we called to leave behind? And I thought, well, certainly one of them would be live in purity that live in purity would certainly be included. That would carry over. In other words, leave, leave the hookups. Leave the gay lifestyle. Leave the pornography. For goodness sakes, leave Fifty Shades of Grey. Leave it alone. Leave it behind. Don't go near it. Don't fall for the enemy's tactic of normalizing pornography by making it popular or calling it art. Leave it. That's, I think they would say that. Leave it. You, you know, um, I, I, I brought along a quote by Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges is talking, talked a little bit about how we, how we should think about what freedoms to enjoy. And he gave four different things, freedoms to enjoy. He said, ask these questions. Number one, is it helpful? Number two, does it bring me under its power? Number three, does it hurt others? Number four, does it glorify God? Get those questions working for you as you're thinking about these things. Here's another one. Live in community. Live in community. I can see the Jerusalem Council saying 
to Gentiles. Live in community. Don't, don't indulge a way of thinking about life and relationship where it's all virtual. It all takes place behind a screen. It all takes place through Facebook, through, through a computer screen or through a phone screen. Fellowship becomes virtual rather than present, rather than together, rather than being across from each other. Don't be so committed to leisure that, that it results in a drop in your involvement with the people of God. Recognize your need. Recognize your interdependence upon each other. Live in community. And so these, these, these claims come out from James. And these claims come out from the council. And you wonder, I wonder how the Gentiles responded because obviously they're getting news of grace alone, but they're also getting news that they've got to abstain from these things. Well, look at verse, look at verse 31 because this is, this is how this hit the target audience. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. There was something about the grace of God at work in, our, in their life that when they even heard certain laws that were being set down, not laws, but just ways to live obediently, ways to live wisely, they were happy. In other words, once they were in the family, they were happy to live as part of the family. Once they were in the family, they were eager to live a life that was pleasing to the father of the family. Once they were members of the family, they were willing to accept the responsibilities of being in the family. And I guess that's my heart for us as well. I know it's my heart for me. I want to accept the responsibilities. I want to live not only aware that it's grace and grace alone, but also there are sins that will entangle themselves around my feet and yours as well. And a Savior who loves us and who died for us calls us forward and tells us to leave them and to accept our place in the family and to live a life worthy of the gospel we have received. Let's pray.